Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. As you may have heard, we recently expanded Venture Fizz to New York City, which is really, really exciting. So it obviously makes a lot of sense for us to expand our podcast there too. So welcome to the 32nd episode and first in New York of our podcast. For this episode, my guest is Graham Brown, who is a partner at Lira Hippo, the most active early stage firm in New York. Their portfolio includes many successful companies and names you'll recognize like Casper, Warby Parker, BuzzFeed, and many others. The firm recently announced its sixth fund at $122 million, so I was really excited to interview Graham to get all the details. In this episode, we cover lots of topics like Graham's background and his career path, the history of Lira Hippo and its new fund, his particular area of focus in terms of making investments, advice for founders who are looking to raise venture capital, perspectives on the New York tech ecosystem, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. If you are interested in reading about the fastest growing tech companies and the people behind them in New York City, check out VentureFizz.com. You can customize your experience by city. So if you're interested in reading the stories about New York tech companies only, you can select the city of preference once you visit our site. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Graham. Graham, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Keith. Excited to be here. Graham, I always like to go way back when I talk to people. So let's uh, start from the beginning. Where'd you grow up? So I grew up in New Hampshire. Um, what more, part of New Hampshire? More specifically, a small town called Ware, New Hampshire, which most people are not familiar with. I grew up in Hooksett, New Hampshire. So you so are? I okay. know where. Yes. Amazing. I so I actually won't get the joke from you about where you grow up, Ware, New Hampshire. And even, even more specifically, I grew up in North Ware, which if, yeah, if you abbreviate that, it ends up being nowhere. Um, right. Which is, which is somewhat <laughs> of the town, very small, grew up on a... You know, a, a dirt road with the outdoor. I mean, an amazing place to grow up. Loved it. Um, very different than New York City. Very, very different. Yes, yes. I went to high school in, in Manchester, New Hampshire. So uh, I think um, my dad, he had a company that actually had a facility in Ware, New Hampshire. So No, no way. Yeah. Well, that's a small, small world. Small world. I, I played hockey and hooks it. So um, definitely spent some time. And then you ended up at Colby. So up in Maine in the yep. NESCAC. That's right. That's right. Stay, stuck to New England um, for school. Uh, but, but yeah, a big part of that decision was I sort of, I went to a small public high school. Um, it wasn't the typical, I mean, I would say the majority of the sort of post-graduation path was actually not even to college. And so it wasn't sort of all competing with my friends to, you know, where, you know, where would we end up, which know which college we would go to and it was more you know my choice was more around uh looking mostly at smaller schools schools that were in sort of more rural environments and so i ended up looking at a lot of uh different liberal art opportunities was fortunate to get into colby they had a great economics program uh, a pretty strong philosophy program as well my dad is is actually a philosopher so he was excited about uh about that angle but it was uh yeah a great decision i loved uh my experience there small classes you kind of get to know most people uh, in your graduating class and in your school really less you know about 1600 kids um and so yeah spent my uh college years up in waterville maine great place i visited now what did you do after college first job so my first job was in Boston, um, and it was at a growth-focused uh, investment bank. So it was uh, 
Uh, it was at the time, you know, what you would describe as a full service boutique when that model still existed. Um, and so there was a research department, there was sales and trading, and then there was the uh, investment banking uh, side, uh, buying and selling companies and helping them to go public. Um, so it was a, a great sort of foundation for me in finance. I came out of school with, I think, a good academic perspective from the economic side, but little to no corporate finance experience. Um, and this was 2005. And so a lot of my peers, uh, you know, in the major were doing similar things, going into consulting, going into finance. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be put into uh, the technology group. Uh, at that time, it was really digital media and kind of the emergence of SaaS. And so kind of got in um, at really, uh, you know, not the earliest, but still fairly early levels of what was happening with online business models. And it was a great experience. Uh, learned a lot about uh, the, I think, financial ecosystem, uh, both sell side and buy side and got to meet a ton of great people and, and was fortunate, I think, through uh, some of the work we were doing there with um, uh, with growing technology businesses to get to interact with some of the uh, multi-stage venture and growth equity firms in the Boston area. And that's how um, I think I you know initially got in touch with Polaris and a number of other firms, uh, which is where... Uh, I, I ended up moving from there, and so I sort of knew I wanted to be more on the on the principal, on the investing side, to have a sort of a longer term relationship with the the companies that we were working with, and to really be sort of a you know mid to long term aligned in that success. Um, and was fortunate to join Polaris um, in their growth equity group, um, kind of right before the markets fell apart. So it was in the two thousand eight time period. Um, they had just raised a new fund and, you know, the strategy there was, um, you know, all out of a single fund, a third early stage technology, a third life sciences, then a third kind of expansion stage growth equity. Um, so a bit of a barbell approach. And these were businesses that, um, you know, were often largely bootstrapped, had shown real signs of success um, and, you know, were likely break even or, um, uh, you know, profitable. I think the, there was sort of the 20-20-20 rule, which was, you know, north of 20% growth, somewhere around 20 million in revenue, and then 20% EBITDA margins are the potential for that. And so, those were the sort of companies that we were uh, looking for and covering across uh, a variety of sectors and looking to make larger um, investments. So, um, you know, we'd think about putting 20 to 30 million of equity to work in a, a single investment and helping take that company from, you know, the kind of 15, 20 million revenue range to 100 uh, and beyond. And so uh, it was a great opportunity to. Um, you know, for me to really, I think, learn um, from some from some great folks on the investing side, um, particularly in terms of like, how do you thematically go after a market and uncover interesting investment opportunities and then kind of forming that initial pattern recognition of what makes a good team, what makes a good business model, what makes an attractive investment uh, opportunity. And so I spent 
uh, about three years there. Again, growth equity group. I spend a fair amount of time on um, fintech opportunities uh, and then really largely moving into e-commerce and in uh, and, and marketplaces. Um, and so it was, a, yeah, again, a great experience. And I ended up going to work for uh, one of the investments we made in the growth equity group. And which company was that? So that was called Lifeline Screening. It's a preventive health brand doing health screenings, looking for asymptomatic uh, conditions that the normal that would be sort of outside the normal healthcare system, and you mm-hmm. could catch easily. And um, it was all direct to consumer, all out of pocket, and quite affordable. Um, and so they would do blood work, vascular screenings, those sorts of things, uh, and set up in a, in a community center. And they were doing you know, close to a million screenings a year. And they had built that business largely off of, uh, off of direct mail. Um, and so, you know, part of what they were working on for the next step of growth was how do we build out that online brand? How do we build out e-commerce? How do we build out partner channels? And I joined uh, with the CMO to help them do that. And that was my focus there. So sort of an entrepreneurial role within a larger organization. Um, and it was great operating experience and was there for uh, about a year before uh, going to grad school and moving to New York. And then that, you went to Columbia. I went to Columbia really with, I think even when I was in Boston, there was, you, you started to see New York evolving and growing, um, you know, more quickly than other markets. Um, and so I was interested to uh, be in New York build out my network and hopefully get involved in the growing venture ecosystem there and was fortunate uh, enough uh, with my time at Columbia to actually, you know, be able to make that, uh, that jump pretty smoothly. And so it was one of my professors there that initially connected me with the SoftBank team, which is where I ended up interning while in school and then working for immediately after graduation. So you knew you want to get back into investing. So I knew I wanted to... Be on the investing side, exactly. Um, and again, you, with those sort of roles, you look for growth markets and that creates opportunity. And there was a lot happening in New York. Um, it was a, 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 you know, a place I wanted to um, be and hopefully build a career. And part of graduate school, among many other things that it helps you with, is it opens up a new network. And I didn't have a network in New York. And so it was a great plug for that. And it gave me the chance to, while in school, uh, get to work with uh, different firms that I wouldn't otherwise have that chance to work with. So, Got it. And then once you did start working at SoftBank, talk about that to the evolution of where you are today. Sure. So I was working um, with SoftBank Capital. They just raised a new fund. So my focus there was sort of C plus through Series B type investments. And it was uh, an independent firm that had strategic capital, so the kind of the anchor LP for the previous 20 years or so had been uh, SoftBank, the Japanese conglomerate. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was, you know, operated with that sort of strategic relationship, but an independent investment committee. And it had other outside limited partners as well. Um, and, you know, the focus there was... Uh, Really, Series A was kind of the core. I spent a lot of time on marketplaces, particularly looking at marketplaces where uh, you were building local liquidity and local network effects. Um, And was there for a little over a year um, and 
through that, got to know Larry Hippo through um, a bunch of different channels. One being that Eric Hippo was one of the founders of SoftBank Capital. He helped make the, so SoftBank had purchased his business. He helped make the connection to Jerry Yang and that investment in Yahoo. And then along with Moss, they decided to set up a venture fund that was really focused on what was happening in the U.S. Um, and so when I was at SoftBank Capital, Eric was one of the special partners there, partner emeritus, he would join uh, partner meetings and I got to know um, you know, him through that. And then at the same time, Lair Hippo was you know, the most active early stage investor here in the New York area. And so we would have regular meetups with the team because we co-invested a lot together, loved what they did, really respected um, what they were doing at the seed stage. And so I got to know the team through, through those two channels. Um, and then about where, what, when was it? It was in the spring, summer of 2015, the strategy at SoftBank as a whole shifted a bit in that we have this separate venture arm, but we have this global opportunity, I think from a, uh, from a, from a, you know, I think you got to look at it through the lens of this is an $80 billion dollar. Uh, conglomerate. They had just invested in Alibaba, which was one of the greatest returns of all times, uh, of all time. Um, you know, how can we, you know, continue to invest on a global basis on something that moves the needle for that larger firm? And so initially it was, uh, you know, focus on sort of $100 million and up investments. A lot of it was coming off the balance sheet. And that then I think transitioned into now what you see with the, with the Vision Fund. Um, which is very much on a global scale uh, in technology businesses where, you know, there's the opportunity to create, uh, I think, dominant players in different categories and really on a global, uh, on a global basis. Um, and so, you know, part of what was happening in that time um, is there wasn't going to be a successive separate early stage venture capital fund. Um, and so, uh Lair Hippo and the relationship with uh, with Eric in particular uh, was going to take over um, management of the early stage fund. There was already a bunch of overlap um, in uh, investments. Uh, you know, I think thirty close to thirty percent, if not more, of the portfolio were over we were overlapping with Lair Hippo, um, and uh, the idea was. Through you know on you know within Larry, but the plug into this sort of ecosystem and community here and manage the reserve strategy from there. And so, I think at the same time as this was all happening, Larry Hippo was raising their fifth fund, and there was going to be an opportunity. They were looking to bring another person onto the team, and so sort of the timing all worked out really well, where there was an opportunity to be part of. I think one of the you know, most rapidly growing funds in New York that was really building out in, you know, what I thought, and I still think, uh, a fascinating platform um, for early stage, uh, particular with particular strength in New York. Um, so I joined as uh, a full-time member of the investment team in what was the fall of 2015. And again, that was with the, with the raise of Fund 5. And recently you announced Fund 6, $122 million fund. Mm-hmm. Plus a $60 million select fund for later stage deals, correct? Yep, that's correct. So why do you think Lara Hippo has done so well? Like what is, what's unique about the firm? Uh, you look at the portfolio of investments, you know, Buzzfeed, Casper, Warby Parker, like what makes the firm so special? Yeah. Well, so 
I think a lot of it has a lot of it goes back to sort of genesis of the firm, uh, how it was formed, who was involved, uh, and where their areas of expertise were, and then obviously success. There's a bit of a virtuous cycle here where you make a really successful early stage investment in a company like Warby Parker, and you see more from that network. Um, but dating back to the sort of original, um, uh, you know, the original foundation, this was really an institutionalization of uh, angel investing that was being done by the founders anyway. There was, I think, they saw early, hey, a ton of growth, a lot of really interesting things happening in New York. Future of media, direct-to-consumer commerce, really thriving early-stage software community. We should actually put together a full team, raise a dedicated fund, um, and you know do this full time. And that was the start. That was sort of LH. That was that was layer one, and that was the first um, fund. And out of that came some. Uh, really great companies that you know about today. You know, good example would be uh, Warby Parker, which was one of the first sort of new direct-to-consumer uh, brand models versus traditional e-commerce, uh, third-party e-commerce that you saw, you know, grow up in the previous generation. This was, will actually, you know, be a vertically integrated brand. We'll have a better customer experience and we're going to tackle a big industry that has, uh, you know, inefficiencies in that case, you know, really around monopolies in the the, the wholesale to retail infrastructure uh, structure. And I was shocked to learn like Luxottica owned a monopoly. I never knew that it's amazing, before. Because people we know the born. brands. Yeah, people know Ray Ban, like Sunglass Hut, everything. Yep, they own everything. Um, and uh, so, you know, among other things, I mean, there was also the um, you know there was Buzzfeed coming out of that. There there was a lot of great. There was Seeky. There was there were a lot of great companies coming out of New York at that time. So it was, you know, part of this industry. Um, other than um, uh, other than making, I think, really smart investments in great founding teams with uh, you know chasing big market oppor- or large market opportunities is is around timing. Um, and the timing was, uh, you know, very well done. There were a lot of really smart early investments made and that sort of led to the growth, which was fun too. At the same time, the ecosystem here was evolving more and more companies were starting. There was more of a, of a need and opportunity for an early stage fund focused on investing in New York. Um, and so, you know, fund two was raised pretty shortly thereafter, and we've sort of roughly doubled every fund up until fund five, and we're sort of at the size now where I think we'll remain uh, with fund six for the foreseeable future uh, for our seed fund. Um, but you know, I th- you look at sort of some of the big categories that you know we consistently invest in across every fund. You know, direct consumer brands and e-commerce is a big one. Um, media and content is you know, probably less than 10% of what we do, but we're, I think, very selective there. The founders have deep expertise there. Um, you know, Eric and Kenny actually met through the Huffington Post. So Kenny was one of the founders there with Ariana Huffington and Eric led the Series A and then went on to um, become the CEO there. And so sort of thinking about next generation uh, media and content models has always been in the, in the DNA of the firm. Um, 
And uh, so I think early, you know, in, in, in BuzzFeed through that and Refinery29, and then more recently, some selective investments like Axios. Um, and um, those, I would say media content, again, it's probably about, I don't know, 8 to 10% of what we do, but we're highly selective there and still from an independent fund, probably one of the more active firms in that, uh, in that category. And then enterprise software is a big area for us. So this, we do a lot of SaaS investing, um, you know, both sort of horizontal type investments, um, you know, for example, like a, a namely in mid-market HR, uh, really, you know, started very focused and now more of a, an actual platform business um, uh, to, you know, businesses that are, you know, selling uh, vertically focused software with the marketplace component. So a company like a Transfix here in New York, which is one of the most rapidly growing uh, B2B businesses uh, here. And that's all about, uh, you know, long haul trucking and logistics and helping uh, connect carriers and shippers in the most efficient way possible and also really give shippers insights into their own uh, supply chain. So, um, you know, those sort of are consistent across every fund those 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 big categories and then you know each fund is going to have an emerging tech component uh you know 15 to 20 percent of the fund that's most likely going to change uh each fund and it's going to be based on areas we're most excited about where we're seeing uh the best entrepreneurs starting companies um and uh again that'll be a portion of of uh, each fund you know more recently things like AI and advanced computing, particularly as it relates to healthcare, uh, robotics, uh, you know, cryptocurrency and blockchain. These are some of the things that we fit into this bucket that we're really excited about. Um, but we're going to still continue doing what we have done really well for the last uh, eight years. And those are some of those uh, larger buckets I mentioned. And what are the areas of focus that you concentrate on? Yeah, so I spent... Um, and I think at every firm I've worked for uh, today, there's been a focus on sort of network-driven businesses and businesses that are going to show uh, real network effects as they scale and defensibility. Um, you know, that leads me to looking at a lot of marketplace uh, businesses. Um, but I'm also, uh, and we can talk about some of those um, in a minute. I know you just covered uh, one of them, Furnishare, which I think about as sort of an end-to-end -end business solving uh, a, a really unique problem in secondhand furniture and doing it in a, in, a, in a really innovative way and a really efficient way. Um, uh, but another area I think that's been really interesting for us that we've seen a lot of things that I think there's going to continue to be a lot of opportunity is within the health and wellness category and digital health uh, brands, um, uh, personalized care, preventive medicine. You know, another example is a company called Uniform Teeth, uh, which is um, combining telemedicine. So you sort of onboard uh, through your phone. You can take a quick selfie of your teeth, what you're hoping to accomplish, what your bite looks like. That goes into an orthodontist and then, you know, if you could be a fit for their treatment, then you can come in, you get the full experience, you sit down with a top tier orthodontist. One of the founders uh, actually taught aligners and how to use aligner technology at uh, UCSF before founding this company. Um, and you'll get a full scan, you'll get an x-ray and you'll get 
set up with clear liners, um, which is a category now that I think rapidly moving to replace uh, traditional metal braces. There's been some great success there, you know, Invisalign being one of the companies. But here's, you know, a direct-to-consumer offering that's combining an in-person experience with a digital touchpoint. And so, um, you know, after you're into your uh, uh, your orthodontist, communication is through the phone. Your aligners are mailed to you. You don't need to come in every uh, a month for a checkup in progress because your progress is being followed through, you know, your mobile device and your check-ins. Um, so that's a company that is, um, you know, building a brand in orthodontia. It's offering, uh, a really elite quality of care and clinical experience. Um, as is it, well is as it geared towards like more adults or are you targeting? Yeah, they can do anyone, but adult is going to be primary. the target, yeah. right? It's going to be it's going to be the primary uh, use case early on. It's where they see a lot of interest, and and you know they're going to offer something that's going to be uh, cheaper than the alternative with you know a ten x better experience and a sort of a top quality of care. And so it's very, and I think we see this across lots of different categories within healthcare, but it's sort of where. Where have there been areas that haven't been as customer focused um, where we can create and still maintain that elite quality of care, but through technology kind of augment the service and augment the experience um, and provide the consumer with something that's better. That if the if the ecosystem had been shoppable, this would have been your choice. And so we're, we see a lot of those um, types of models emerging. It's an area that we're really excited about it. And I think we're going to continue to see um, interesting in investment opportunities in, you know, building a real brand around a medical service, a medical device, um, a, a, you know, any sort of form of, uh, of care. And a lot of what's happening there is, uh, you know, what telemedicine is enabling is it's not just a replacement for what existed before, but it's, you know, making those models substantially better. Um, so that's better and cheaper too, right? Like and the, cheaper is a big thing. Right. Too. So having two daughters, one that's 14, that's going through the braces right now. Mm -hmm. And then literally yesterday, uh, the tw my 12 year old had her dental, dental appointment. Like we need to connect her with the orthodontist. So I feel like it's like, okay, this, this Klein daughter is mm -hmm. getting out of braces. We need to get the other one in. Yeah. Right. And, um, I'm not debating whether or not they need them, but it certainly would be better to have an alternative. Mm -hmm. And I know your company is focused more on the adult market, but that's where what's running through my head right now is living this real time with, uh, you know, you know, a 14 year old and a 12 year old. Exactly. And it's, it, and as an, as an adult too, the experience is now you go to your dentist, they say you probably need this. They give you a couple referrals and then you got to go get your, and in the city it's, you know, six to $8,000 for right. this. Uh, you don't really know what you're getting into. Right. Um, of course you can look up online reviews and you can go meet the, uh, the orthodontist, but it's not the type of experience that makes you want to talk about it to your friends. Typically it's not a, it's not a, it's certainly not aspirational, but it's not a great branded customer experience and it's not going to, you know, change in the near, this is how the, this is, how the industry has been built up. And there are obviously a ton of great orthodontists out there doing great quality of, uh, uh, of care. And we think there's an opportunity to, you know, 
take that in this existing practice and make it more efficient with technology and then build a real direct consumer brand around it that people are going to think about when they think about uh, a better smile. Just like they do with glasses with a Warby Parker. Exactly. Yep, um, and in within healthcare as well, I, you know, I think there's a lot of interesting, you know, AI and machine learning applications that are going to drive, I think, better personalization and better quality of care for cheaper. Um, we were chatting uh, earlier a bit prior to this about a company called K Health, mm-hmm. which is taking individual attributes, uh, collecting symptoms really through a dynamic conversation with an AI and then presenting consumers with information based on others that have similar attributes and have had the same symptoms. And so it's taking a much larger knowledge base. It's opening it up to a consumer in an easy way to digest. It's giving people information that's very much dynamic and personal versus static. And, you know, I think everyone's used Dr. Google before you arrive at some sort of static content online and based on your symptoms, you ultimately, you know, conclude that you are dying and most likely have cancer. And so this it's, is, it's, it's horrible. This is, <laughs> it all roads lead to the bad worst case scenario. Yeah. And so this is, <laughs> this is an opportunity to provide uh, better information, better quality of care and to do so effectively at, at no cost. And so the, I think the future for um, an AI around personalized health and healthcare assistance and how that fits into the ecosystem is a massive, massive opportunity. And so this is one that we're really excited about. Now, if someone's interested in approaching you for an investment, like mm-hmm. what's the best way to get your attention and what's the criteria that you generally look for? So, um, I mean, people talk a lot about getting referred in and that's going to be, if, if you can get a strong referral in, that is uh, so what's the that, best a, route. And that an could be... entrepreneur that you're already working with type of referral, like another founder? So, exactly. So, within our community of founders, that's going to be probably the strongest. Okay. Um, other investors can be another great route, particularly if it's, you know, angels in our network or people that we co-invest with and they're still actively speaking with you. Um, Not passing. And, and exactly. <laughs> and then just, you know, the network of uh, entrepreneurs in the city, right? There's not that many degrees of separate, or there shouldn't be that many degrees of separation uh, from Lair Hippo and people in the ecosystem in New York. Um, so that's one route. I think a lot of people talk, I, I think very targeted inbound can be effective. It's obviously much harder. People get a, way too many emails and it's hard to sort of sort through the noise. But if you identify, and this is not, this doesn't just go for, for me and for us and for other firms, or not just for Larry Hippo, but it also goes for other firms. I think if there's a specific insight and reason why this would interest me and someone sends a really thoughtful email um, and concisely outlines why the company is exciting right now and uh, sort of the, the problem they're solving, why it's a great uh, opportunity, then I'm going to you know be more inclined to pay attention than if it's clearly like a blast email or something that's not thoughtful or something that's not specific. So I think you can go in um, if you can't get an introduction uh, that's, you know, a, a, a warm and, you know, really positive referral, uh, then another route is you can go direct. 
and sometimes it's not, you know, you know, I, one thing I'd advise to founders too, is it's not always going for the partners, uh, the associates, the principals. These are people that are out in the field and oftentimes a lot of the gatekeepers for these firms that can be a great route to go in as well. And it, the, the important piece is making sure that note or the reason why you're reaching out is personalized and relevant to that firm. Um, and so to, to do your homework in advance is really important. So let's say you get through that first hoop, you get a referral from one of your portfolio founders mm-hmm. and uh, you say, great, love to meet you for coffee mm-hmm. uh, or come into our office. What should the entrepreneur uh, expect to share with you in that first meeting out of the gates that gets your attention? Yeah. So, I mean, we want to know the sort of what part of it, why are you doing this and why now? And so we'll, I'll always start a meeting with understanding the, getting the founder's background and why they started this company. Like what was, what was the reason they either left a cushy job or they're starting a new startup and like, this is what they decided to dedicate their life to. Um, and from that, we'll then get into, uh, what they're building and hear the pitch. And I mean, I think for that piece of it, you really want to know, you know, what, what is, the problem they're solving, how are they doing it, and why is this approach the right one? And others have sort of missed it, right? It's in, 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 it shouldn't just be another Me Too business that's a slight derivative from things that are out there. We're looking more for, you know, key insights around, um, you know, how you're solving a problem in a, an industry that has potential to build a big company. Um, and, you know, oftentimes backing that up with some data on early traction or performance. And I think we're comfortable investing anywhere from uh, a company that's uh, pre-launched to, you know, decent traction in the market. So we look at a wide range of things. And so if there is data available, it's sort of really articulating why that data is so exciting and what it shows about, you know, your business and the likelihood of success. Um, I mean, for us, so much of what we're looking at at that earliest stage is, um, you know, is that founding team. And so that story the founder tells, uh, getting it to be, you know, sort of selling me or selling us on why this is so exciting is a big part of it. Because it's not just us. You've got to sell your first customers. You've got to sell your early employees. Like, why is why is it, despite all the signs that it's really hard to start a new company uh, and have success. Like why is it that people should trust you versus the status quo or what they're otherwise doing? And so uh, a big part of it is um, a a big part of the decision in getting uh, us excited about the company is that, is that pitch, right? And then it's, it needs to be a business that can scale up, right? There's plenty of great businesses out there that don't need venture money. Um, and you know, I think it's always helpful when a founder has, you know, good awareness of where the, you know, exactly how much money they need to raise, where that's going to take them and why that's going to be the right amount to get to that next stage. Right. Because our, almost never is our round the last round in, in, invested, right? Almost always there's a series A and there's another stage and it's trying to get to, uh, you know, ultimately that point where the business then turns a substantial profit and, um, you know, is 
is a is a standalone company that can go public or be a large acquisition and so sort of like how you you know what's the path to get there um and i think it's really helpful to uh have a a strong and defined plan early on 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 how you get there and part of that's just preparedness understanding what you need to do to get to those next steps and then obviously it's part of our job is helping make sure all the entrepreneurs we work with get there in the most effective way as possible and sort of lending any unfair advantage we can to get into that successful series a um but i think this general like really preparing and understand what you need ahead of time uh is is really valuable for that first meeting um and so uh yeah i mean I, I, most of our first meetings at least for that you know initial phone call or initial face to face are going to be about a half hour and so part of the preparing in advance is being very focused with that time and being able to articulate again that's the full story why it's so exciting within that uh within that relatively narrow window so that we are excited to follow up and take the next step let's shift gears a little bit um the New York tech ecosystem. Mm-hmm. What would you say is the biggest misconception about New York City and the tech ecosystem here? I mean, I think it's that you can't. I think most of them are dissolving uh, and happen over time. But there's there's for a long time there was conceptual. You can't. It's hard to build a big company. There aren't big exits. Um, I think that's continuously being disproven as we see more and more large exits, more and more large companies, uh, you know, more and more growth there. Abnex is obviously a great recent outcome. Flatiron Health, another great recent outcome. Uh, there are now many substantial, um, you know, billion dollar plus businesses that were started in New York and have expanded in New York. Um, so I, I think this idea that if you have to, you know, if you're going to, you know, build a multi-billion dollar company, it's got to be started elsewhere is no longer, I don't think that's a, uh, a, a, cons- a concern. And I don't think it's, um, uh, I mean, if it is, if it is, uh, if it is, um, a, a belief, I believe it's been mostly, uh, disproven at this point. And I think also just, it's the lack of tech talent. I think this is, we're seeing more and more growth here. There's been more investment in keeping tech talent in the city. And as there are more opportunities, more people will either move here or stay here for those. And so that's just something that over time is going to continue to improve, right? There's still, you know, far more, uh, there's, there are still going to be more developers in the Bay area than there are in New York. But that number in New York is growing. Um, you know, oftentimes they'll stick around for longer and be easier to retain. Um, and I, I think that's an area that um, there's uh, obviously a lot of investment from private investors, but also things like Cornell Technion and other initiatives that are getting tech talent into New York, staying in New York, and focused on New York. So. What's been impressive uh, about New York, in my opinion, too, is the wide range of companies. Historically, mm-hmm. they had different pillars of media and consumer, but there's just so much broad, you know, hard tech. It's it's everything, infrastructure, 
you know, there's so much diversity of uh, companies being built. Yeah, I think there's there is a wide diversity. We're seeing an interesting robotics community as well, particularly in Brooklyn. There's uh, a really interesting and growing crypto community. There's lots of. Uh, I mean, I think within every category, we have coverage. And then you also just think about the big verticals. You know, largest healthcare market in the U.S., largest real estate market in the U.S., the biggest brands are here. So there's lots of different uh, vertical opportunities where you not only have a lot of people with the expertise, but you also have massive markets there. And so I think that that creates a lot of really interesting uh, opportunity for businesses here in New York um, and a lot of talent with different perspectives uh, than you might otherwise have. What do you like to do for fun outside of work? <laughs> outside of work. That's a good question. <laughs> if is, that is exists. There outside of work. Uh, no, I, I, I so um, like to do, uh, you know, get outdoors as much as possible. Um, so my wife and I have a dog. We'll try to go upstate and do some hiking. Um, I have family on the West Coast. We'll try to go out and visit them. In the winter, it's skiing. That's my thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the summer is just getting outdoors as much as, uh, as much as possible. Um, and so, yeah, those are the two biggest things. I, I, re- I recently got into uh, uh, the piano. So I, I, I purchased an electric piano. I'm trying to teach myself uh, how to play. I did play as a kid. I quit way too early. Um, one of my biggest regrets. Um, but now I'm trying to sort of relearn uh, and pick up a musical instrument. So when I can find time, I try to squeeze in a little bit of practice there. And, and how are you trying to like self-teach yourself? Is it through like YouTube videos? There's so much great stuff out there. It's, it's amazing, amazing, right? Yeah. The, the resources now yeah. are incredible. Um, yeah. And you can integrate the technology with an iPad yeah. uh, into what you're actually playing. So it's, it is a much easier, it's a much easier to, uh, uh, to sort of self-learn here than ever before. So yeah, it's been fun. Yeah. I'm a hobbyist with the guitar and it's just like, you go to a YouTube video, figure out which song you want to learn and they show you, you know, tablature or just, you know, here's what you do. Here's a close up. So YouTube is pretty amazing. You can kind of get any, any song I have interest in playing, I can find it on YouTube and I can basically get enough information to learn how to play it. Exactly. It's incredible. Yeah. Well, Graham, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate all your advice and words of wisdom here. And then also sharing your path to what you're doing now as a partner in a VC firm. Uh, I think it's interesting for people to learn all the different paths and, and you had a unique one. Thanks, Keith. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.